Basically, hate speech loads the gun, but misinformation pulls the trigger. Welcome to the United Nations Uniting Against Hate podcast, where each week I'll be talking to those who've encountered hate speech firsthand, as well as activists and experts from around the world about how they're trying to counter it. In this episode, I'll be having an in-depth conversation with two organisations who monitor hate speech, and I'll be discussing the relationship between hate speech and misinformation. What we are seeing is that in peacetime, these ethno-nationalist parties are actually achieving the goals that they had in wartime through this hateful language and hateful discourse. I'm Katie Dartford, and later in this podcast, I'll be talking to Dennis Gillick, the executive director and editor of the Balkans Investigative Reporting Network in Bosnia and Herzegovina, and Colleen Wood, who researches and writes about digital politics focusing primarily on Central Asia. But first, we'll hear from one Canadian non-profit organisation that does lots of interesting work on trigger words that appear on various platforms and risk morphing into real-world violence. I'm uh, Christopher Tuckwood, and uh, I'm the executive director at the Sentinel Project. And uh, what we do at the Sentinel Project is assist communities threatened by mass atrocities around the world, placing an emphasis on uh, direct cooperation with the people in harm's way and also the innovative use of technology. All of that can take, you know, different forms depending on the circumstances. But uh, one of the big areas that we've worked uh, or focused on in recent years is misinformation management, since rumors and misinformation in a lot of places have the potential to contribute to conflict and violence. And so by addressing those, hopefully we also reduce the risk of that violence. So when it comes to hate speech, this is something that's been of interest to you for quite some time. Um, anyone who's familiar with issues to do with, you know, con- conflict in general, but specifically looking at mass atrocities and genocide, I think we'll understand why hate speech is really significant, one, for the people who are aiming to commit those kinds of crimes as they need to dehumanize particular groups and then motivate other people to want to attack them. That's very significant from a perpetrator perspective in the sense of, I guess you could say, hate speech being a useful tool. But from a prevention perspective, it's also a very useful tool in the sense that if we're able to measure it and uh, identify and and measure trends, it's potentially an early warning indicator that can help us to identify an increasing risk of violence. That's the importance of hate speech as we've seen it from the Sentinel Project's perspective over the years. So in terms of what we've done along those lines, we established an initiative called Hate Base. Kind of taken it in a bit of a, a new direction now, but essentially when it was created, it was the world's largest multilingual database of online hate speech, coupled with software that was constantly adding to that database by monitoring online spaces, especially Twitter, for example, uh, looking for certain keywords that were coming up, and then applying certain contextual rules to determine what was or was not most likely to be uh, actually hateful content. Yeah, we established that, looking at this issue in over 100 different languages, uh, and it was available to many other organizations from academia to NGOs to the UN to civil society organizations that were using that data for their own purposes as well. So there must be some difficulties with monitoring trigger words. Of course, not all hate speech necessarily is reliant on people using offensive terminology and that sort of thing. But with that being said, there is a a strong correlation between the use of 
terminology like that and hateful content. So as it is right now, one of the best ways to try and get software to recognize what is potentially harmful content is to do that kind of keyword searching. So looking for particular terms in particular languages that are very likely to be used in a hateful context. And then also applying additional contextual rules to analyze when that content is or is not, in fact, very likely to be hateful. So that's why human input in teaching basically the software for what to look for and how to make these determinations has always been quite important. Then you also run into other things, like if you're getting this data from online, um, predominantly online sources, uh, or just certain social media platforms, then you're going to naturally get more results from countries where those things are accessible or popular. So just because, for example, you know, maybe you wouldn't see a lot of data for South Sudan doesn't mean that there isn't a lot of hate speech in South Sudan. It just means that there aren't exactly a lot of Twitter users in South Sudan, and those who are maybe are not tweeting in English or what have you. So the Sentinel project was set up in 2008. What changes have you seen in terms of hate speech since then? Just more generally, not not particular to actually hate base itself, um, but more generally, I think there's a greater public understanding of the importance of these issues. Uh, and I say these issues to include not just hate speech, but also things like rumors and misinformation and so on, which have actually formed the majority of our work in recent years. Yeah, Can you tell me more about how you see the relationship between hate speech and misinformation? Do they feed into each other? Oh, they most definitely do. And actually, that's something that that's an idea that I've been trying to promote more because people to date have seemed to think of them as, you know, fairly exclusive phenomena. And they are different, of course, but they're closely related. And sometimes it's hard to differentiate one from the other. A lot of the conversation around misinformation in recent years, if you're sort of to listen to some commentators, it, you might get the impression that this is a, a completely new phenomenon, which it isn't. But with that being said, a big change in recent years has been the proliferation, uh, the ease of proliferation for that sort of thing. We're no longer living in a world where somebody needs to be in control of, of a large company or a state and have their own you know, radio stations or newspapers or television stations in order to do that sort of thing. It's now theoretically possible for any human being who can access an internet connection to become a producer of that sort of, of content. That really does change things. And, and with a global reach, which is really significant. So yes, it's definitely... It's definitely changed a lot in that regard. Everybody now is potentially a creator and disseminator of rumors, misinformation, and disinformation. So can misinformation cause the same kind of outcomes as certain hate speech that's been put out there? If we're talking about misinformation that relates in certain contexts to like relations between relationships between different communities or like very contested political issues in certain contexts and that sort of thing, then yes, I, I think it does have that potentially inflammatory. And, and it's all the more true, and I think this is where things come back to the relationship between hate speech and misinformation. It's all the more true if rumors or misinformation like that make an appearance in a context where people are already prepared to 
believe them in a sense, whether that's because they have distrust in the electoral process or in their political opponents, or because they have distrust or hatred towards another ethnic group because of hate speech. And this is where we see the relationship, and this is something we want to explore more in the future, because I think it has relevance for early warning and prevention. But we see the relationship between hate speech and misinformation as being one where very often hate speech is kind of, you could say, like the background noise of conflict in the sense that with the exception of influential people who are specifically inciting their followers to go engage in violence, a lot of hate speech that just sort of promotes hostility but not outright violence against another group can be circulating for quite a long time and not itself sparking violence. Although it does often prepare people to see violence as being a more acceptable way of dealing with another group of people. Where the spark, uh, you could say, comes in is when coming into that sort of like already tense, hostile situation, you have a rumor, a piece of misinformation that deals with an alleged current or impending threat, which is very often the case, something to do with the, the vote rigging allegation or an impending attack by another group. And that can actually provide the sort of the triggering factor for people then to take matters into their own hands, often violently. Basically, hate speech loads the gun, but misinformation pulls the trigger. It's kind of the relationship that we've come to understand over the years. and We really want to explore that more going further, kind of substantiate that and see what it actually means in practice for early warning and prevention. You're listening to the Uniting Against Hate podcast from the United Nations. And that was Chris Tucker from the Sentinel Project, whose portal, The Hate Base, monitors online conversations for hate speech. One organisation doing a similar kind of hate speech mapping is the Balkan Investigative Reporting Network. Dennis Gillick is the executive director and editor of their branch in Bosnia and Herzegovina. I asked him what the drivers of hate speech narratives there were. So hate speech for me is a variety of discriminatory language, of language that incites people to violence, of offensive language. And primarily from the experience that we have in Bosnia and Herzegovina, it's primarily the drivers of those narratives are unfortunately populist politicians, ethno-nationalist politicians who are dominant in this country and who are perpetuating the cycle of offensive language, which has real-life consequences for the entire country and the people living inside. So tell me about your organization. When and why did it come into being? The Balkan Investigative Reporting Network in Bosnia and Herzegovina was created in 2004 because that's the year the Bosnian state court started working. And since that day until today, we've monitored every single trial, every single hearing and every single trial related to war crime atrocities in Bosnia and Herzegovina. It is some 700 open cases, some more than 10,000 articles that we've written and monitored uh, the entire process, almost two decades long of prosecuting genocide, crimes against humanity, war crimes against civilians, and war crimes against prisoners of war in Bosnia and Herzegovina. When you say you're mapping different forms of hate speech, what sort of things have come up? What are you seeing at the moment? Uh, so basically what we are doing within this project that we call Mapping Hate is that we are mapping four different things. The first one is hateful narratives by politicians. So we are basically doing media monitoring that maps all of the daily newspapers in the country, the 10 most read web portals in the country, and the three most watched TV shows at night, the, the news TV shows, in order to map all political statements. So whenever we find one that's, according to our methodology, true 
actually hateful language, where it incites to violence, where it's extremely offensive towards another group. We map it in our database. Uh, the second thing that we map is discriminatory language. So it's not open calls to violence. It is uh, basically more skewed language, more hidden, uh, but it's quite clearly targeting a specific group, a minority group, or a different ethnic group, which is the most common in our country. And then the third thing we map is atrocity denial, so genocide or war crimes denial or glorification of people who have been convicted for war crimes or genocide. And then the final fourth thing we map is actual incidents on the ground where minority groups have been attacked, where you have you know, graffiti uh, on churches, on mosques in minority areas, destruction of uh, you know, graveyards uh, of a certain ethnic group, or even actual incidents where you have attacks against a minority or a protected group. The idea behind the entire mapping process is to prove the correlation between political statements and political drivers of hate and the actual atrocities that take place. And then finally, to prove that there is a lack of systematic prosecution of hate crime in this country and of hateful language, which allows for this perpetuating circle of violence where you have more and more discriminatory and hateful language by politicians and less and less prosecutions in this country. So what's been some of the consequences of this? How are people feeling in the country? And what's been happening to people as a result of hate speech? Basically, unfortunately, as a result of hate speech, we have seen a rising number of far-right groups being mobilized. These are often connected with hooligans, with football fans. Sometimes they are also connected with foreign-aligned actors like uh, Russia. We are seeing gongos, like these fake NGOs or fake humanitarian groups being mobilized in order to spread uh, hateful or discriminatory language or discourse in order to expand this gap between the three different ethnic and and, and religious groups in this country. In terms of what the actual consequences to real-life people are, we have seen violence, we have seen throwing stones and breaking uh, windows or graffiti on mosques, on churches, where these specific groups are a minority in this country. And we have seen uh, graffiti uh, against, you know, on, on doors, even of returnees in, in Sarajevo and in Bielina, where there were even open calls to violence. Uh, so people have actually are very afraid. Uh, we've also had uh, incidents where there was actual violence, uh, where uh, returnees were pushed around, filmed, and called certain very offensive names. Uh, all these things are leading to more and more segregation and more and more people leaving areas where they are a minority to live in places in the country where they are a majority. This perpetuating cycle of ethnic hatred is basically continuing wartime plans to have ethnically cleansed areas fully. And unfortunately, with the state capture on our judiciary, which is failing to prosecute hateful language and hateful discourse, what we are seeing is that uh, in peacetime, these ethno-nationalist parties are actually achieving the goals that they had in wartime through this hateful discourse and discriminatory language. Why do you see that the last few years everything's got much, much worse in this area? 
Well, basically, uh, there are a variety of reasons. The first one is that we basically have the same political elites for the last 20 years. These ethno-nationalist um, political parties on all three sides who are extremely corrupt, who are guilty of state capture, and are basically using the entire extremely complex governing system and all of the public procurement to basically garner more and more wealth for themselves through illegal means. Now, basically, every two years we have election. So it's every two years. So we are basically in perpetual pre-election or post-election campaigning, or it is always revolving around the elections. And basically, these political parties are so corrupt. The situation in the country is so bad. There's so high unemployment. The, the outlook for young people is so poor. There's so many young people leaving the country that basically the only narratives, the only success, the only thing that these political parties can basically say in the election campaign is focusing on atrocities, focusing on fear, focusing on division. So basically, these are the entire drivers that they use anyhow. And basically, when you are doing that for 20 years, you kind of have to every two years raise the bar and uh, create your narratives to be much more emotionally driven, much more charged, much more hateful, and and to create much more fear. So when you are starting in 2006 to say, you should be afraid of the Bosniaks or the Serbs because of the atrocities they committed in the war. In 2016, 10 years later and five election cycles later, you have to go as far as calling them terrorists and they will kill your families right now. We have to succeed, succeed or run away or abolish the entities. Eight years later to 2022, where we are at this point, these things are already so ingrained in the public narrative uh, that you have to go as far as actually making steps for secession uh, because the public kind of expects it. You've been telling them something for 20 years. They have been actively afraid for 20 years. So remaining in that fear is almost no longer an option. So it's basically a kind of a pyramid in which you are every step of the way coming closer and closer to the top where you can no longer perpetuate the cycle of fear. The second thing is that uh, the situation gen- generally has become much more charged in the sense of the pandemic, the sense of the war in Ukraine, uh, so many young people leaving. There is such a huge level of frustration and emotionally charged narratives that we are basically in a situation where these ethno-nationalist parties are kind of struggling even to contain it. And finally, you have foreign malign actors like Russia, which are actively supporting destabilization because it works for them uh, when they sit down at the table to discuss Ukraine, that they can say, well, okay, if we get something, we can also calm the situation in the Western Balkans a little bit or in Bosnia and Herzegovina. So all of these three things are kind of creating this situation where the situation has become worse and worse and worse. And because of the absolute state capture that these political parties are having, they are also controlling the judiciary and the media. So through their control of the judiciary, it means there's impunity for these acts, the corruption and the hateful discourse. And then through their control of the media, they basically control the entire narrative cycle all the time. 
So there is no kind of counter narrative to what they are saying in the public. Which is what you're trying to do. Which is what we are trying to do. And I I don't want to sound as pessimistic that it doesn't exist. It does. And you have very strong watchdog organizations or media NGOs. But it is difficult to counter uh, public broadcasters, big media outlets with several hundred uh, journalists and reporters with thousands of clicks a day with a group of 10 to 15 journalists who are trying to write about very specific topics, who are trying to write in a different way, uh, who are trying to cover various uh, hundreds of court cases, and then do, again, analytical and investigative reporting. So uh, it's difficult to counter uh, the influence that, you know, these established media, uh, mass media have, especially through social media channels. This is the United Nations Uniting Against Hate podcast, and that was Dennis Gillick, the executive director and editor of the Balkan Investigative Reporting Network in Bosnia and Herzegovina. So we've seen how in an already tense and hostile situation, hate speech and misinformation can really feed into each other. My next guest recently wrote an article on how the conflict between Tajikistan and Kyrgyzstan unfolded online. Her insights show how the spasm of violence that broke out in September also marked a steep jump in the asymmetry of their digital information campaigns. My name is Colleen Wood. I have my PhD in political science from Columbia University. My dissertation is not on hate speech, but rather kind of the more optimistic side of social media. What's striking is that Kyrgyzstan has a much, much freer media space than Tajikistan and also a much more vibrant, I think, IT community. And that IT community is sparked a kind of hacker ethos when it comes to free speech, free media. And so there's a really strong fact-checking industry. And this fact-checking industry has also then, you know, spurred channels on Instagram and Telegram with really polished, really high-quality videos laying out evidence from NASA, satellite photography, doing visual fact-checking using, like, open-source military data um, to to demonstrate and and lay out the facts on the ground of, of how this violence unfolded in Tajikistan, where there really isn't much of a, a free media. But there isn't a free media. The, the government has really written away um, the opportunity to, to report independently. But so there, journalists often have to rely on government reports, on these press releases, and sometimes even rely on Kyrgyzstani media to get their information. So you could really say that hate speech isn't necessarily in that case related to having more people on Facebook in a more digitally savvy country. They're not necessarily related from what you found out. Yeah, I mean, you could probably say that it's like because there's less of a mature media space that it's then easier to just like fall back on this kind of pejorative language um, and pejorative symbols because the, the reporting's infrastructure isn't, isn't there. So to sum up, what's your opinion on countries trying to push back against hate speech and misinformation? In Central Asia, like in many other countries worldwide, hate speech influences politics insofar as it's a easy thing to want to target or to stop. But politicians, I think, have disingenuously used 
or like weaponize the hate speech in order to target free speech, especially during COVID. We saw laws all over the world coming out of trying to, in the name of restricting misinformation, in the name of restricting hate speech, um, put out really vaguely worded laws to punish language, I think gave governments leverage over media outlets, over opposition politicians, and just over average people's communication online. Yeah, what I've, I've noticed in Central Asia, like people want to combat hate speech, want to combat misinformation, but the tools that exist to do that often end up privileging government actors. There's no easy answer anywhere in the world, but in the kind of corner of the internet where I pay a lot of attention, I see these laws to push back against misinformation doing more harm than good. That was Colleen Wood, who researches and writes about human rights, social movements, identity and digital politics, focusing primarily on Central Asia. Many thanks to Chris Tucker from the Sentinel Project and Dennis Gillick from the Balkan Investigative Reporting Network. So for now, goodbye. Join me again soon for another edition of the Uniting Against Hate podcast from the United Nations.